Dr. Cesar Lever with another episode of the Way to College podcast. And uh, today it's part two, part two of my conversation with Dr. Victor Sainz. And, uh, and really, he's going to continue to share his story. Where we left off, um, we were actually, I think he was reflecting on the students that he was teaching and their uh, eagerness to jump into the adult world and to start adulting and, and the, the, their motivations for doing that. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to step back. And I don't know that we got to do this during the first conversation. You graduated from UT. And then, you know, I think initially at the beginning of our interview, you said you went back, you came back to the Valley. Is that right? To teach? I did. Yeah, I did. I went why, back why to did, my, uh... why did you do that? Well, good question. I got a math degree and I, um, you know, in, you know, for anybody who's been an educator and if you have a math degree or any kind of STEM degree, you know, those are hard to find sometimes. And I think it was a pretty uh, seamless uh, transition to say, okay, well, I can get a job as a math teacher. I did not train as a math teacher. And obviously I have great respect for the training and preparation that goes into training our teachers. Uh, I was on an alt cert track, you know, emergency certificate and the whole bit. So I did that right out of college because you know it was a way to get a quick job and actually came back to my high school uh, to teach, uh, which is always a can be a pretty interesting because I had not been that far removed from the experience. Right. So most of my teachers, old teachers were still there. And now all of a sudden they're my colleagues. And, you know, it was uh, it was quite an interesting experience. I didn't do it for too long, though. So I knew that I wanted to get back to graduate school. And, you know, continue on my journey in exploring some of the big questions around college access and opportunity that really not just piqued my interest, but shaped my entire undergraduate experience. And, uh, you know, and I think that led me ultimately to apply to the LBJ School of Public Affairs. That's where I did my master's degree and really became my first real experience working at that level, working on research projects. I worked with uh, Jorge Chapa, who um, is now passed. Uh, may he rest in peace. And also I work with Gil Cardenas and, and uh, various other scholars here at UT Austin at the time. And, uh, you know, so that was a really big eye-opening experience, right? To be on my very first sort of research team and uh, to have an opportunity to to write about uh, not just college access, but college access for Latino students. So it was a really uh, unique um, experience to to be sure, you know, uh, a couple of years after I had already been teaching. Let me ask you, you, you spoke at length during our last conversation about um, your students and their motivations and right. How they define success. And, and as you, you stated your role, you see your role as the, the guide on the side. I'm going to take your words. Um, you know, as you're graduating UT, you're going back home. What was, how are you defining success for yourself? You know, great question. I think so many young people actually, they struggle with this question for themselves because so much of what we deem to be success is a projection of others' expectations and not necessarily our own. And as a young person, wherever it is you grew up, South Texas or anywhere, uh, you know, sometimes those expectations can be pretty lofty, informed by our family who, you know, wants the best for us and 
you know, what parent doesn't want, doesn't think that their kid is the best looking kid, the smartest kid, the most talented kid, right, in, the, in they've ever known. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, if you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about. You know, but then that also comes face to face with reality sometimes. Like, well, okay, my kid may not be the smartest or best looking or most talented or whatever. So we're, what is he or she, right? Um, but we still want the best for our kids. And those projections on our kids that we impose on them sometimes. And look, I'm speaking as a parent. I have a 14-year-old. And I, I believe me, I think all those things. But I also know, understand reality, right? So, um so I think as a young person, that was my my projection imposed on me from my father and my mother and family was like, oh, okay, well, you're a valedictorian in your high school class. You went to UT Austin, you got this math degree, you know. Yeah, they were pretty lofty. Uh, interestingly, though, you know, coming back home, and I only taught for a year, just to be real clear. So it was early, early in my career, right out of undergrad. Um, but yeah, I did. I wouldn't say it was a... I did, I did not feel like it was a failure. Actually, I was excited about earning a steady paycheck and benefits and all that. I mean, it was like, oh, wow, okay. But I, I almost thought it was almost second secondary, the actual teaching part. Oh, wow, this is like a hard job. <laughs> yeah, it's a job, but it's a very hard job. Yeah. And, you know, I think the fact that I did not have formal training uh, as a teacher – just it gave me a whole new appreciation and respect for the craft and the vocation of teaching. And obviously, I've devoted my entire career as an educator at different levels now. Um, so, but that experience, I think, was just so eye-opening for me. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, I did not see it as a not, a, I didn't see it as a failure in any way or not, not meeting my expectations. I, I do see it as an opportunity to embark on a career in education and mm-hmm. you know it ended up being so important for my early sort of uh training and exposure to you know some of the core issues that happened in the classroom we put new teachers in the hardest classrooms right and that continues to be uh widespread practice in in our schooling yeah. systems and you know often the most ill-prepared teachers right with the most complex and complicated learning needs and uh and, you know there's very few professions where you do that you don't do that in in medicine you don't do that in law i mean you know but yet we do it in education and you know i think is it has given me just a whole other sense of perspective and appreciation for why we what we need to do to help support young teachers early career teachers and uh but uh yeah it was an absolutely important stepping stone on my way to towards an education research career which is ultimately what uh, I pursued. But again, back to my earlier point, to answer your question about success, I think too many young people do feel like they gotta, they got to, um, you know, honor others or satisfy other people, whether that that's their parents or a partner or to keep up with their friends or whomever. Yeah. And as I tell my grad students all the time and my undergrads, you cannot, you know, yes, it's human instinct and human nature to compare look to your right, look to your left, and all that happens. It's just natural human uh, human nature. But, you know, the more we do that, you know, the more we are left perhaps feeling uh, less than or not measuring quite up when we have to really respect and uh, appreciate the journey that each of us is on singularly. And, you know, whether it's in our educational journey or our career journey or family personal life journey, 
spiritual journey, whatever journey you're thinking about in your life. Um, but, you know, as a young person, <laughs> we have very different notions of success at different stages in our life, right? And yeah. um, I, I never, I've always felt secure in my identity in so many ways and what I could or couldn't do. And that's not the case for most people. I, I certainly understand that. And I, part of that is just, again, as I reflected in part one of this interview, just the, the solid upbringing that I had that, you know, helped to instill a lot of, a lot of self-confidence and self-belief, but don't, don't mistake that for being overconfident or arrogant. I mean, I think so much of that self-confidence is anchored and built on humility and recognizing what my limitations are, right? And that, you know, to know thyself is ultimately the, the greatest goal for all of us. And to, and so many young people don't ever embark on that journey, either because they're too busy trying to live their life, right? To put food on the table, to provide for their family or whatnot. You know, and I think I, I, um, I know that for young people, we, they really struggle. We all do mm-hmm. with those notions of success, but we have to constantly come back to number one. What's most important for, for us as individuals? What's, what are our core set of values? And those values change and evolve over time, you know, as circumstances change around us, right? So uh, for young people, you just got to remember that, you know, people want the best for you, certainly your parents. Sometimes we mistake that for being these lofty expectations that may be unrealistic. Um, but, you know, I guarantee you, you know, most parents are ultimately going to be happy and proud of you no matter what, as long as you're trying your best, doing your best. And that's a message I give to my kid every single day, right? Because I'm hyper sensitive to not overimposing on him yeah. those expectations. He knows his old man was a valedictorian in college. He knows his mom, university grad. I mean, that kid has got, you know, a lot of uh, reasons to have high expectations and, and he already has a high expectation for himself, right? And beats himself up for it. And so many young people I see that do that over and over again. They just beat themselves up. You know, people are their own worst enemies, right? And you know, because we think we're constantly measuring or not measuring up to, to others and to others' expectations, right? So I'm repeating myself, but I think you get the gist of it. <laughs> My notion of success has always been a, a little bit of a moving target. If anything, you know, that has changed and evolved significantly since I've been with my partner now almost 30 years of my adult life and we together have uh, derived uh, joint goals for success right and, yeah. and i think we that's a ever ever evolving project for sure thank you thank you for that um and i yeah i i uh, absolutely agree um you know I, I echo your sentiments about success you know you you um you go back you teach for a year and you have you know, we when we talked about sort of the the what we see around us in terms of you know professional direction and opportunities. And your father, you had your father to guide you, and and obviously a role model with his own educational career, his own professional career. <sighs> Decide you want to go to graduate school, and you know you want to go to graduate school. You talked earlier about equity and issues of equity and access. Was there a central question that you wanted to answer? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think at the heart of everything I've ever done as a as an educator, as a scholar practitioner, has been a recognition that the 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 the, the playing field is not level. Right, the the playing field of opportunity, access and opportunity in education is not level, and education, as we know, can be the great equalizer. But if it's uh, 
if it's already an inequitable landscape mm-hmm. in the way that we support and fund our schools and the kind of teachers that we're able to hire and retain and the kind of courses that we offer, I mean, on and on, you know, I think that the fundamental question for me has always been and, and goal maybe is uncovering those examples of inequity in, in our educational systems that tie to the larger societal goal of, of providing everybody an, an equal opportunity to to fulfill their life's goals. And I'm not here to to uh, impose on anybody what their life goals should be. Mm-hmm. But I think for too many young people, especially in our communities where you and I grew up, you know, they they don't even get off the starting block or yeah. or they're starting 20 or 50 yards behind everybody else on that race. Right. And, you know, and, and you know, and I'm not making excuses for them. These are the set of structural inequities that are rampant in our society. And, um, you know, it's, it could start from the moment you're born into the family, into the mother that brings, you know, bring you brings you into this world, the prenatal care that she had access to and was able to provide in the womb. Uh, to the kind of conditions that exist as you're being raised as a as a young child, um, you know, whether it's a two parent household, whether it's, you know, a multi generational support system, access to health care, uh, I mean, on and on. And then you get into the educational system, early childhood access, or early childhood education access, or, you know, having those amazing teachers that that some school districts are able to provide in elementary school, being able to read by third grade you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? We know that there are these developmental milestones for young people. And over and over and over again, Jose, you know, as well as I do that, you know, we don't measure up, we don't meet the mark for, for our community, for our kids. And how is it that kid's fault? You know, and I think that to me has been the fundamental question um, in so much of the work I've done. And yes, I focus more on the back end of that pipeline getting young people to and through college, uh-huh. right? But, you know, as we kind of work our way backwards along that pipeline, we recognize that there are so many leaks along the way uh, to use that analogy that I know is overused, but yeah, um, it, it is a useful analogy as a reminder that we still got a lot more work to do. And, you know, the challenge is, is it not only is it an unequal playing field for so many of our children and our kids, but there's people actively, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a scholar, like <laughs> like the rest of them. But there's so many entities and interests out there um, that are actively working to erode uh, and further magnify those disparities in, in educational opportunity, and through policymaking, through politics, through the the way that we fund and or not equitably fund our schools. I mean, on and on. Even at the local level, school district, uh-huh. uh, you know, board members making decisions that often um, at odds with what I would deem to be, uh, you know, the most successful outcomes for our young people, Um, you know, and I think engaging, recognizing that larger ecosystem of opportunity, uh, educational ecosystem, um, you know, so much of what I try to do as a scholar, as an educator, is to teach courses, to do research, to write papers, to speak on these issues, um, you know, uh, as much as I can and to align myself with people, scholars, collaborators that are also like-minded. And, and there's a rich tradition of this work uh, that you know full well, and I know you probably interviewed many who contribute to this body of knowledge around educational disparities and educational inequities. 
Uh, and they manifest in some ways that are predictable in some ways that are much more harder to predict, right? But if we're asking big questions about why do we have the elected leaders we have, you know, how could they possibly be designing policies and, and implementing ideas that may be at odds with what we might do to be common sense educational uh, opportunities? Well, it, you know, what is a, how is the electorate educated about those issues? You know, often these are, you know, low propensity voters that are not participating in the electoral process. Those individuals tend to be products of a broken educational system themselves yeah. that didn't quite adequately prepare them to be critical consumers of information or to be fully engaged members of a pluralistic society. And therefore, you know, that's also an indictment on our, our school public school systems. I mean, on and on and on. All these issues are interconnected. And I, mm-hmm. I do try to work with the young people that I train and mentor and learn alongside you know, to recognize what those larger systemic issues are, not be consumed or overwhelmed by them because it's easy, easy to do that and just throw in the towel and say, hell with it, man. It's too, it's too complicated. Um, but also not be on the other end of that is people just burying their head in the sand saying, you know what, I'm throwing my hands up. I can't, there's nothing I can do, right? It's yeah. too, not only is it too complicated, I don't understand it, or it's too complicated, I don't want to deal with it. And somewhere in the middle, I think, is uh, a lot of other people, too, that uh, that don't want to give up and, and know that we can't. And too many uh, folks in our community are, are counting on us, whether they realize it or not, whether we're going to yeah. ever get that credit. We don't do it for the credit. We know that they are counting on us, right? And I, and I think about all the, the forebears that, that have come before us, other scholars, other educators, activists, you know, leaders, change agents that did the work in, I don't know, cases like Tyler v. Doe or designing the top 10% law, you know, years and years ago or on and on the school finance cases here in Texas. You know, these are civil rights leaders, litigators, you know, attorneys, researchers, policymakers that fought the good fight. And many have sort of handed the baton to the next generation. And I, I you know, I hope to think I'm, I'm part of that next generation doing my part to carry it forward to the next gen and so on and so forth. These, these struggles are our struggle just because they happened 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. We see them returning. And, yeah. and this is like uh, returning in more sinister ways now, and which means that our, our tools are the gifts that we have, the blessings that we have as educators and scholars need to be put to use in even more critical ways to, to uncover, to shed light, and then ultimately to design a path forward that that is bold and that ultimately, you know, builds on the important work that has come before us. It's powerful stuff. You and I and I know the work that you're doing is amazing work and and certainly contributing to that lineage of of folks who are who are trying to move the needle and trying to to change the landscape. You um, so you go to graduate school, do the master's public policy. Was one well one? What was next? What did you do after that? After completing that, because it after it, after my like master, that, yeah, I worked I worked here in Austin in in educational research firm, uh, nonprofit firm it doesn't exist anymore, but now it's part of the AIR American Institutes for Research, and as a uh, regional laboratory, you know, we worked on professional development 
for school districts around teacher training, school reform, a lot of school reform, a lot of uh, college to career programs were being implemented and adopted, adopted and implemented by school districts, programs like AVID or Success for All and all these different comprehensive school reform models. And, you know, that that continued to kind of keep me very engaged at the ground level with practitioners, with educators on the front lines, including, by the way, working with schools around not just around Texas, but even in Mexico, even uh, on on different uh, reservations, you know, working with native populations. And, you know, I think that that fed me in many ways because it was so hands on. Right. I couldn't be in a classroom as a teacher anymore, but I was still working alongside educators on the ground. And, uh, you know, and I think I, I also in the back of my mind, because I had been mentored by some of the folks I mentioned earlier, primarily Latino scholars, but also others to think about, hey, you need to think about, you know, getting your PhD and, you know, maybe in the abstract and if I said about you, but, you know, I, I, growing up, yeah, I mean, I, I thought about, I talked about grad school because my old man had gone and that's one of the privileges or advantages I had, I guess, but I never really embraced that or or it never crystallized for me until I actually started believing that about myself and my own pathway and the utility of that kind of degree and that kind of training. You know, I tell young people all the time, I mean, yeah, don't just get your PhD because it's oh it's you know, you get this credential and it's when you got these initials behind your name, but what are you gonna do with that training? You know, how are you gonna put that to use? And you know, why how is it gonna help advance your career and life goals? And I, and I ask this question of a lot of prospective students all the time. Make a case. And, and I took, I did the best I could when I applied. I only applied to two PhD programs in California. And one of them was USC and, and the other one was UCLA. And I, I was fortunate to be admitted to both. And um, I think, you know, and the reason we chose California is my wife and I at the time we didn't have a kid back then. And we knew we wanted to move there. We were still we had only been married a couple of years and we were ready to move to another state, to, you know, sort of embark on that phase of our life. And I, and I chose, we chose Southern California because, you know, one, I felt like as a Tejano and obviously I'm a born, you know, born and raised here, fourth generation Tejano and proud Texan and all that. I knew that California in some ways was just as a policy researcher kind of peering into our future as a state demographically, but also in the kind of educational challenges that they were grappling with uh, around bilingual education, around affirmative action, right, cases and whatnot. So it, it definitely was a draw for me in that regard. My wife is an actress by training and, you know, it made sense for her career too to to go there. So I think it was just a recognition of that moment, of that reality in our lives at the time. And we moved there in 2001 and, you know, 01, August of 2001, we moved there. We experienced our first earthquake. I, I've told this story several times. You know, that was that was crazy because, you know, we were, <laughs> we were from both from the valley. We have no experience with a, with an earthquake. But sure enough, within the first two weeks, we experienced our first earthquake. And then, and that was on, like on a Sunday, I remember, early September. And then two days later was 9-11. And, you know, we had just moved to California and I remember Eric and I was like, what the hell are we doing here? Let's let's go back to Texas where it's safe. You know, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, you know, three of those planes were flying to LAX and we lived like four or five miles from LAX and 
the whole city shut down. I mean, you lived in California, you know, you can imagine what that was like. It was crazy, man. And, you know, I think I, I remember that vividly because I do remember having that gut check moment. Like, hey, I hadn't even started at UCLA there on the quarter system. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm like, there's still time to go back, right? <laughs> but I'm glad we didn't. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, as I say, the rest is history. I chose UCLA over USC. Um, honestly, it could have been almost a flip of the coin to be re- really candid with you all. But UCLA for me was um, allowed me to stay within the public sector of higher education, um, both providing uh, really I was blessed to receive multi-year funding offers and uh, to work with some amazing people. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have gone wrong, honestly. Mm-hmm. But the, the public sector piece of it, I think, really called out to me. And, uh, and that has remained kind of a, uh, an important value for me throughout my entire educational journey, right? A proud product of public education. That's a big sort of tagline in my bio. And it's true. And I think so much of now uh, you can make the arguments like, well, UCLA is barely a public school, but you know, it's, you know, definitely a very strong affluent population of students there. But, you know, as a graduate student there, as a doctoral student there, it just, it was a different existence. Um, you know, I wasn't as tied in with the undergraduate population like I was when I was at UT Austin, but you know, it, it really just, it, it really provided all, all that I was looking for great mentors and training, uh, one of the top programs in my field of study and just an opportunity to live and work and learn in the state of California and to understand that policy and educational context, you know, was just so important and it proved to be a huge compliment to what I had already, the base, the foundation of learning that I had uh, here in Texas. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can't say enough about, about my time there. Honestly, we love California. If not for my alma mater calling me back, we'd probably still be there. Um, you know, we go chance, we get go out to visit every chance we get. Uh, but, you know, obviously the volume, the scale of those challenges in, in a state like California, you know, pales in comparison to everywhere else, and yeah. including Texas, although we're catching up. And, uh, you know, just understanding the way the, the master plan for higher education in that state came together and, uh, you know, the ways that systems can work to provide upward mobility and opportunity for all, right? I mean, that's a, there's a lot of lessons there in California. It doesn't mean they have it perfect or figured it out, but um, they certainly well ahead in terms of the structure and systems that they have in place within the post-secondary sector anyway, more than most other places. You know, you mentioned um, the things that, that took you to UCLA or to California. You talked about the policy. You talked about, you know, the perspective it was able to give you for for someone who's looking for a phd program what should they be thinking about what advice would you give someone yeah i'm i'm glad i didn't apply for doctoral programs like right out of undergrad or even right after lbj i'm glad i had a chance to work for a little while Uh, it's also by the way advice that i give most people um you know, a PhD and a doctorate is uh, even a, any other terminal degree. Those are always going to be those opportunities are always going to be there for you. And you know, I think at the PhD level, it really is a very specialized, you know, education that you're getting. Very specialized degree. I mean, it's a small niche. You know, my doc program was in higher education and organizational change, uh, really anchored around student assessment, 
college student assessment theory, college student development theory, and you know, it really provided me exposure and grounding in areas that that I would I absolutely continue to use to this day now, not just as a professor, but as an administrator, a higher ed administrator, as an associate dean for my college. So I'm, I am um, appreciative, and I think I, I really appreciated it more that I had already been working and had had some life experience. And I think, you know, I don't know if there's a right age to start a PhD program, you know, everybody's journey is going to be unique and, you know, individualized. I get that. But but I do encourage young people to think about working for a little while because it will make your decision that much more informed mm-hmm. and, and you know, perhaps even more of an accurate decision you ultimately make about pursuing a PhD or not. It's not for everybody, nor should it be, right? And it's not the end-all, be-all. I, I can tell you that my motivation was um, to join the academy and I – I really didn't know what that meant at the time when I first started. In fact, at UCLA, that program that I went to is like one of the top ranked in my field. And it had a lot of graduates that were working as professors around the country. And that was one of the reasons why it was so well known and so top ranked. Um, But I really didn't know what that meant. And, you know, I think part of my socialization there as a doctoral student including a heavy dose of just understanding the academy and what the rhythms of it are, what the currency of it is, you know, about being published, about being marketable, about finding a tenure track position, the kind of institution you want to work at, right, a research-oriented more or a teaching institution or whatnot. You know, those are all things that I would never have even known about, right? So I think the training, the mentoring that I got there was just really so critical for me. And, um, I, you know, the thing about the academy also, we have an oversupply of PhDs in this country across a whole host of fields. We've got a ton of PhDs out there that are uh, either unemployed or underemployed. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that to me is a, another indictment on our system in many ways. Um, and that varies, of course, by discipline. But, um, you know, that, that to me is just speaks to the inefficiencies that we have in our post-secondary system in this country, that we have so many individuals with degrees and fields that they don't even use uh, towards their career pathways. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, somebody thinking about a PhD, you know, has to really weigh what are the career goals that that degree is going to help you advance, right? And if you don't have a good sense of that, then you're not ready, honestly. And I, I think that, or maybe you don't need it. Maybe your career goals are not what <laughs> you need to be recalibrated, right? And yeah. I think people's career goals, especially with this, you know the Zoom Zoomer generation and all that. I mean, you know, Gen Gen Z and the, the millennials. You know, we know that these young people coming through the workforce right now or about to come into the workforce are, you know, much more likely to change career paths, change jobs, et cetera, than prior generations. So now more than ever, you got to think about as a college student, like what kind of training and education do you want that will prepare you for mm-hmm. potentially you switching gears in terms of your career pathway, you know, multiple times. And that's just, you know, that's just the, the folks that do research in the uh, workforce and future workforce. I mean, that's what they're projecting, but you know, I, I see it in the young people that I hire in my, my work that they're, uh, and it's not a, necessarily a function of attention spans. I think it's, 
you know, they have a lot more interest now, right? They have access to the world at their fingertips. These are digital natives that learn that have grown up in an area where they've known nothing more than touching screens and manipulating, you know, words and images in that way and learning in that way and um, learning online and virtually. And, and, you know, these are all modalities to learning that most of us were not, edu- you know, trained within or socialized within those of us who are teaching right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll catch up eventually as this generation of young people become educators themselves. But but for now, that that's really, really misaligned. And, you know, we have folks that are doing instructional innovation and technology work that are doing what they can to help train up those of us who are, you know, who were raised in very different systems. But it's just such such a misalignment right now. And so as a young person thinking about college, and I certainly hope that you are, because most jobs, you know, and again, these are the workforce researchers out there, you know, 10 years from now, the top 10 jobs may not even exist yet, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, you hear those kind of things all the time. And, you you know, you've been in the workforce for a while, you see it, right? Um, you see it. And how is AI going to impact the, the kind of job opportunities that exist in the in the future when you know, when so much is going to be, you know, potentially on autopilot in those ways or perhaps in unpredictable ways. So I, you know, a lot there to, to, to tease out. And you asked me about pursuing a PhD, but I immediately go to workforce, go to career, you know, because obviously a college degree is a means to an end. Um, and it needs to be not so utilitarian. I understand that, but but in the world, the brave new world that so many of these young people are going into, you know, I, I got to, you know, really be that canary in the coal mine here and say, you know, we don't even know the world that awaits us in 10, 15, 20 years or that is about to be, you know, created or recreated. Um, if the digital revolution brought us so much change in the way we live and work and learn, the AI revolution is going to be potentially a tenfold, uh, you know, usher in a tenfold set of changes, you know, or maybe even more. We don't really know. Right. So I think if you're a young person thinking about college. That's great. That's step one. And think about ways that you might train yourself, educate yourself, you know, earn a credential or a badge or, you know, micro credential, whatever it is. Right. All these different offerings now and ways that are going to make you prepared marketable, um, you know, and just be able to pivot on a dime because that's what's going to be called out for, you know, for years to come. You, um, thank you. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, when I talk to students, first year students, especially, and even uh, this week I was at a meeting with um, my local EDC director and they were talking about the the jobs and the community and stuff. And, and so he asked for my perspective and, and I told them what was going on sort of in, in schools and in universities. And I said the same thing. I said, you know, they're we're preparing young people for jobs that don't exist yet. In five years from now, 10 right. years from now, there are going to be a whole host of fields that don't exist right now. But we've got to prepare them for that. And so how do we so we need to have got to be larger. Yeah. yeah, fundamentally, you know, we, we need future workforce. And I and again, I, I sound like a very neoliberal kind of utilitarian kind of dude right now. And if y'all don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But, um, <laughs> you know, as I said earlier, education is to means to an end. It's also the great equalizer, right? 
And so these aren't just cliches. I mean, I think I see the big, I try to see the bigger picture. You've heard hopefully throughout the interview, me talk about the big picture and for young people, you know, you have access to the big picture because you have the world literally at your fingertips, but are you a critical consumer of all that information that's come, that's being bombarded at you, right? We still need you to be well-read. We still need you to be a strong writer. We still need you to be grounded in, in basic STEM principles, you know, math and science, right? Ideally, you, you know a little bit of coding, right? You know, it's not just enough to consume the, all the screens and, and, you know, manipulate all that, but, you know, what is the architecture behind it? Uh-huh. You know, I think ideally young learners, young people just – you got to be self-aware in those ways, you know, be a good writer, you know, be a good consumer of information, digital literacy, information literacy. How can you determine and assess the, the validity and the truthfulness of information, of data, of whatever images are coming at you on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, right? So much of that is, I, I fear, I fear that that our these younger generations are, are not going to be as critical in consuming all that information coming their way to be able to sort out truth from fiction. And I realize truth, capital T or, or small T, you know, nowadays who truth, my truth, yours, whatever. I mean, yeah. you know, that you got your facts, I got mine. I mean, that's the, the world we live in, in this sort of post-truth environment where AI, by the way, is potentially manipulating the kinds of messages and narratives that are coming our way. That AI is helping to shape the algorithms of content that we are consuming, right? And this is true as an adult, much less a kid or a young person, a teenager, right? And I worry about that with my teenager about what, you know, he comes to me sometimes and asks me these random questions about world history, you know, about what happened in the uh, Syrian Empire or the Egyptian times or whatnot and how that ties to, let's say, present day struggle in, in Egypt and uh, Palestine and, and Israel. And, uh, you know, I'm like, where are you getting all that? And I'm glad he's asking these questions. And by the way, I don't necessarily claim to be able to break it down for him. <laughs> but I said, okay, well, let's look at this together. Like, where are you getting this information from? What is the the accuracy or the validity of this information? How can we even tell if it's real or not? What's truth or not, fact or not? You know, and again, in the midst of all that, I'll say, I mean, we know there are people actively working to suppress. Yeah. <laughs> certain kinds of facts, if you will, and truths about our, our own history, yeah. right? You got a governor in Florida suggesting that slavery, you know, may be a motivating force for some young people, right? And I mean, just talk about getting gaslit left and right. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, you know, the more and more people don't say, well, wait, that's that not, a, not only is that BS, that is destructive to our to our society, right? We're not calling out that enough. Well, instead, we're banning books, right? Because we fear, we fear what? I mean, this is information and content that's again accessible anyway, you know. So it's more it's more performative and symbolic, and you know, I, I do see that the education space has become much more politicized, and now I feel more so in my lifetime right now, and uh, and I'm fearful that you know, we have operators and people pushing agendas that are not on the up and up, that are more interested in and, you know, pulling, pushing wedge issues, right, to, to score political points with their base, very increasingly diminishing sliver of the electorate that they're playing to, 
And and most people are either apathetic or out to lunch or just completely unaware, ignorant, right? And and that's scary. I mean, that's scary. And in the midst of that, all the challenges in our schooling systems that I alluded to earlier, we have a lot of work to do, man. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my part uh, to not throw in the towel, yeah. right? And uh, to encourage more and more young people to to question everything, including my own son. I mean, I said, look, if you don't like something I said or did or decided, you know, feel free to push back. Let's have a discussion about it. And I want, you know, I want young people to be empowered to ask those questions and to not just question authority for the sake of, you know, being a rebel without a cause, but, you know, to question everything. I mean, yeah. to me, that that overriding value system needs to be the the operating system for all young people, for everybody. Question everything. You can trust but verify whatever, you know, whatever makes sense for you. But now more than ever, I think, you know, young people need to really embrace that part of their everyday reality and how they engage with the world. You know, I want to be mindful of our time, uh, Victor. So as we uh, as we head out, last two things. One, tell us about the work that you're doing now. Because you've talked about the work the writ large, like these big questions that you're dealing with. But I know there's, you know, work that, that uh, is very near and dear to your heart, this work that you've been doing for a couple of years. Uh, tell us about that work. Um, and then uh, and then I've got one other last question for you. I appreciate you asking about this whole two part interview. I've not mentioned Project Mails much at all. And um Yes, and you know, since I arrived back at UT Austin in 2007, um, first as an assistant professor, those first few years I spent really carving out uh, sort of an identity for myself as a scholar, which is what you're supposed to do as a early career faculty member, right? Produce and write and publish and all that. And I did all that, and I was doing it in a way that really focused on these core issues about what's happening to our boys, particularly our Hispanic Latino boys in, in the educational system. You know, um, and we don't have a, we probably need to do a whole other show on that. I, I would certainly be open to doing that and maybe inviting some of our colegas around the country who also have a lot to say on this topic. But I, I think fundamentally boys have been systematically pushed out of our schooling systems, put, you know, put into the school to prison pipeline and, and ultimately, we're not really fully interrogating in a critical way why. Right. And, you know, I think there has been a growing chorus of people, whether it be educators, researchers, observers, even policymakers that have been asking why. When President Obama was in office, he launched My Brother's Keeper. The fundamental of that effort was the big question about why. Why are black and brown boys and other young men of color being systematically denied opportunity, pushed out of schools, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the data, boys are more likely than their their peers, particularly boys of color, to, to not finish high school, to drop out, uh, to end up in juvenile justice system or in the prison system, um, to be tracked into special education ranks, to be educated in under-resourced schools. I mean, on and on and on. All these are data points that are all interconnected, no question about it. And often they have to do nothing with the young man, right? And everything about the structures and systems around them that are perpetuating these outcomes for boys over and over again, particularly boys of color. And so that, that's that been the central focus of my research work 
since I was an uh, you know assistant professor. And uh, in 2010, my co-founder Luis Ponjuan and I uh, we launched the Project Mills, mentoring to achieve Latino educational success. And it was our effort to really translate that research work into direct action, right? So what good is all this research? And, you know, we have published several pieces and all that. If it's not being of use to the community that we serve and that we represent. So mm -hmm. I, um, you know, we launched this effort as a way to translate our research work. We seized on the strategy of mentoring, which is why mentoring is in our name, Project Mills. And we are really unapologetic in our focus on this population of Latino males in particular, given the demographic reality of the state of Texas, right? Um, uh, my colleague, Luis Ponjuan, who's an associate professor at Texas A&M University, um, you know, we're both here and I work at UT, so the two flagships coming together on this very, very important issue for the state of Texas in a state where the Hispanic community is now more than half, uh, the majority of the population, certainly in schools, public schools have been more than half for some time. And, you know, these are core issues, fundamental to what we do as educators. And given our limited time and energy, often we triage our attention wherever we can. And this, to me, is a group to focus on most intently, given the reality of those uh, outcomes, educational outcomes, right, for these young men. And so that's where we focused our efforts um, 12 years into that work, almost 13 years in now, we continue to advance a very um, multifaceted research agenda to better understand how we can move more of these young men to and through college. Um, we work, we do that work at the local level through our mentoring program, partnership with several school districts here in Central Texas. In the state, at the state level, you know, uh, over a decade ago now, we launched the Texas Education Consortium for Male Students of Color. And that is a cross-sector effort, meaning we're working with school districts, with community colleges, with four-year universities to align our efforts to build capacity to better serve young men of color enrolled in our schooling systems all the way from pre-K all the way to college and, and beyond. And uh, that statewide network convenes several times a year. We have an annual Male Student Leadership Summit here at UT Austin. Uh, we do professional development with our partners around the state. We just had one in Laredo, our 20th um, fall or spring institute in the last decade. And uh, and yeah, and this is our way of uh, rolling up our sleeves, working hand in hand with educators and practitioners around the state. We rotate those you know, twice a year professional development sessions from one corner of the state to the other. Uh, we're in Dallas or Houston or San Antonio or El Paso or the Valley, wherever wherever they might be. Our partners are all over the state, including at UTRGV and, and, and South Texas College. Um, and so, yeah, and that work has been perhaps some of the most impactful just because we're working alongside all these entities that are already doing the work, that have minority male initiatives of their own, and we're there to help support them at elevate them to build a culture of evidence around them to ensure that they're working properly, that they can be replicated or, or grown. And, uh, and yeah, so that's the work I'm, I'm engaged in. Uh, I could go on and on about it, but that's the, the short version. Um, you know, we do work nationally as well with uh, a whole network of uh, Project Mills faculty and research affiliates. These are many early career scholars who are, have, have a research agenda focused on boys and men of color themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, and through it all, I think we're, we're looking to find 
the interest convergence around these issues. We're not an exclusively male-only program, despite our name. Um, you know, but we also are not afraid to take on the tough topics and issues that we need to around all these different dynamics for young men, for boys and young men, including in the work we do here locally with uh, with our with our middle school and high school boys that we're mentoring. Um, so yeah, that's uh, in a nutshell um, the work that I've been devoted to. So I certainly a passion project for me and for Luis and for Dr. Emmett Campos, who's our director for Project Mills, an amazing team of people that we get to work with every year for more than a decade now here at UT Austin. And, uh, you know, the work continues. We're engaged in multiple research projects right now around the state and uh, with different institutions within our statewide uh, consortium network. And uh, we're also engaged in mentoring kids every, every week in schools. So direct service to kids, right? So we walk the walk in that way as well. Wow. Wow. Powerful, powerful work. Um, I wish you the best as you continue that work and, and, uh, you know, I'm eager to, to help and support any way that I can. Certainly. Um, I was, uh, disappointed, you know, I, I know, um, I think I'd reached out to you. Ooh, I think it was 2016. I think at a Haku, we were doing a Haku presentation and we, we wanted to get UTRGV signed up and, and, uh, and get, get going. And, and I felt like it, took forever to, for anything to, to start happening, but, um, whatever I can do to support that work and, and I'm going to hold you to, yeah, let's, let's schedule something where we bring some of your affiliates, some of your colleagues on, on here, and we'll have a larger discussion about, about this, this issue. Cause you're right. It is, uh, you know, having been in the classroom, I see it. Um, I see, I see the, 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 the boys that do come, the men that do come and then that leave, um, shortly thereafter, if they make it, they come in and then, and then, you know, the off, off to do something else or feel like it's not for them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, that's the, tr- the, tr- the tried and true sort of narrative that we hear over and over again. And for some young men, you know, they're making a decision to put, to be a provider for their family. And obviously that's an honorable decision they're making. I think for for so many other young men too, it's they have a negative or a failure experience in the classroom with a grade, with a course, whatever, with a professor, and that's already perhaps the might be the the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, as far as the accumulation of negative experiences or that they may have had with with education across their journey, and they're like, you know what, I, I can do better, or I don't need this to to go put food on the table, or whatever it might be, right? So. There's a it's a complex uh, set of variables there. I don't mean to overgeneralize there, but but uh, yeah, I mean this continues to be a real challenge facing our consortium members, our own institutions, and um, no easy solution, right? But but I think the the community, the learning community that we have built, uh, provides us a space to be able to share best practices, to share and exchange ideas and strategies. And, uh, and that's all we can do. I mean, we have to be in community with others that are, you know, in common cause around these issues. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there, there's, there's no shortage of other topics or issues or subpopulations of students that we could target. But we choose to focus on this, given the demographic urgency, given the educational and social justice imperative. You know, I know it's. You know, sometimes people say, well, why do we care about boys? Boys are fine. You know, this is still a very like, potentially misogynistic or patriarchal society that we end 
And and yet we have a whole generation or two now of boys and young men that uh, have systematically lagged behind their peers. And, you know, we have to be able to ask these big questions about what will that mean for the future of our society, our communities, our families, mm-hmm. and, um, and our workforce. So, uh, that you know, these are big questions that, that, that have no easy answers, but you know, we're working our, um, our best, we're doing our best to, to create space to have these conversations. Awesome. As we leave, as we head out, what final words do you want to leave for our listeners? Final word for, or for your listeners, because there are so many that are, um, you know, looking at or thinking about their college journey is you have to enjoy the ride. And I know, again, you probably have no shortage of cliches from all your interviewees uh, throughout the years, but um, the educational journey is a beautiful journey and it's so unique for each and every one of us. And it's so easy to look, look across the aisle and compare yourself to somebody else. And, um, you know, ultimately that journey is long and arduous and there are no shortcuts. And I think that as a young person, you know, nowadays more than ever, it's so easy to take a shortcut or to think you can, but, but you have to put in the work like anything else. And, um, and ultimately, you know, you put out, you get out what you put in, in this educational journey. Uh, sometimes we start with one hand tied behind our backs when it comes to that journey as a function of, you know, the family we're born into or the resources we may or may not have access to, you know, and, uh, and that's all well and good. And life ain't fair. As I tell my kid all the time and young people all the time. And, and yeah, we're going to get, we're going to fall down. We got to pick yourself back up. And I think that the key is there is to finish that journey. And you'll find once you arrive at the end of that journey, whatever that educational journey looks like, that guess what? A whole new uh, journey will start at that <laughs> point. And what education does is when you get to that end point of earning your degree, let's say, um, assuming that you can get to there, and I hope you will, um, getting to the end of that journey means that the next set of journeys you, you start will be multiplied. Right. And some people end up with very limited choices on the next stage of that journey um, because they weren't able to finish. You know, that means they could think of a different metaphor, maybe fewer doors to open, whatever metaphor you think fits there. But a college degree will guarantee you that you'll have many more places to start that next journey in your life. So and it'll lead to a much more fulfilling life. You know, people who are educated, have college degrees, you're more likely to live a more healthier life, more fulfilling life, right? More likely to travel, more likely to engage in your democracy, right? I mean, all those other, and more likely also to be a, less of a drain on on your government, right? If that's something that resonates with you, right? Less likely, I'm sorry, to be a drain on, on your government, on, on government resources, right? To be more self-sustaining, be a contributing member to society in that way, a taxpayer, all those other things that the, uh, you know, the adult in you will have to deal with, but, but see vale la pena ultimately. And, um, you know, just keep in mind that it's not going to be an easy path, but it's going to be one that's well worth the effort you put into it. So I'll leave you with that and hopefully a hopeful and a positive message for you listeners. Thank you. Thank you.
Victor, thank you for your time. Thank you for your stories, all of the the insight, the information. Uh, I think there's so much there. I'm looking forward to to future conversations. I'm also looking forward to the work that you're doing and and to see how you continue to uh, again further all of the work that others started that came before you. Thank you again, Victor. Thank this you. Concludes, yes, this concludes another episode of the Way to College podcast. Thank you for listening. Please make sure you follow, rate, and uh, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>